Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 367. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 367 you're listening to. My guest today is producer, engineer, and coach, Brad Dollar. Brad is somebody that I've known for some time, and he used to be located in the Bay Area. Now he is located in the great city of Nashville, Tennessee. Really happy that he's here today. Brad has worked with a ton of people. I'm not going to even begin to list them all, but uh, really great guy and, uh, and really experienced at that. So very much looking forward to having him on the show. Brad Dollar here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends, and let's ask the question, do we really need a website? Well, the traditional way of thinking, of course, is that everybody has to have a website, right? And I know the pains that we all can go through to get one put together. If you have no skills and you're dependent on other people, it's not just a pain in the ass. It's a colossal pain in the ass because I can't tell you the number of times I have hired people to work on websites for me. They've set me up with, you know, a great site and then I can't access it. I can't change it. I have to contact them to change it. It is really a frustrating position to be in. And, you know, your website is the thing that's going to be dynamic. It's changing because you're working on projects, you're updating it. You have uh, social media posts that you might want to add on there if you're, if you're doing that, if you're incorporating that. That is not fun to be in that position. Now, there is another camp of people, and I can also be in this camp, those that have some skills to do it on their own. Maybe they're not total top professional website designers. I certainly am not. Once I got so frustrated with the process and wanted to take control of my own website destiny, if you will, I just started to figure it out over time. And that put me in a position of being in control of my website. That's a great position to be in. So if you have those skills and you want to go for that, that's great. But what I'm asking is, is do we really need a website? Let's examine it for a minute. Let's say somebody has heard about us and they want to consider hiring us. They need to find out more information. What information is it that they need to get to? Well, they need to have a way to get in touch with you, you know, contact you. They also want to have a, a listen to some of your work or see some of your work, depending on if you're involved in movies or video games. And they want to know maybe just a little bit about you. But these days, it seems that nobody really has the patience to comb through a huge website and read a giant bio and look at all your pictures. And they just want to get down to business. That's that's my assumption. And I could be totally off base on that. So the alternative to that, of course, is, you know, the first round of it is social media because you can represent yourself there whether it's Instagram or Facebook or, or LinkedIn, of course, which I'm always a big fan of. That's one way to do it. If you're tired of that whole realm and you want to try something different, 
You can do these things that are essentially, I, I don't know what the proper term is. Maybe they're called link trees. I don't know. I know that that is a, uh, a company that has one of these things. And essentially it's a single page that has a bunch of links. And in my particular case, I use solo.to for Mapudro and for my for myself as, as an audio professional, but also for uh, the podcast for working class audio. So, you know, if I go to solo.to slash, uh, I think it's WCA. Yep, it is WCA. You got a picture, you have some basic information, and then you have links. You could create links to anything you want. You can provide an email and you can keep it really simple or complex. At the end of the day, it's just a single page. Like if I go over to, let me see, Matt Boudreaux. Okay, so solo.to slash Matt Boudreaux. If I go there, I have a playlist embedded from iTunes or Apple Music. Stuff I've mixed, stuff I've mastered. Uh, I've got a link to the website, you know, if, if you want to continue to have a website. But I've also got interviews on pod, other podcasts that I've done with uh, other people interviewing me. I've got links to my social media accounts. And that is something that I find is really easy to pop into the footer of an email. People click on it, they get to the point really fast. You don't have to you know, do a big presentation and, and I don't have to put too much effort into it, to be honest with you. So if you're in that position of, oh my God, I don't wanna build another website or my website's crap, Check this out. Solo.to is one that I use. There's a million others like them. I have no affiliation with them other than I just like the way their pages look. And in fact, uh, my brother from another podcast, Lid Shaw, turned me on to solo.to. Yeah, still the question, do we need a website? I don't really know. And I think I've talked to enough people to find out that everybody's website's slightly out of date and many people don't have them. So I don't really think that your work is going to suffer greatly. So if we're talking about individuals, I think it's debatable whether or not you need a full-blown website. If you're running a studio, that might be a little different because there's a little bit more information you're gonna wanna present. There's a little more of a, I don't know, a sales job that has to happen there. Some people like to peruse the gear you have. Some people like to know what other artists have recorded there. And they certainly want to see pictures of a place that they might potentially book to do a record. So that is a case I would say I would do it. I would definitely have a website for that. But I don't know. I don't feel like I get enough traffic through my own website. And yet I seem to get plenty of work. So I'm not really thinking that that is that important. I'm just here to raise the question and play devil's advocate and get you to think about your own situation and examine whether or not you think it's really worth it. So that's it. Figure it out. Check out these individual pages that I've, I've hipped you to. I'll put a link in the show notes to uh, the ones that I use, solo.to. And uh, yeah, that's it. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, 
It's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I've used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Brad Dollar here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Brad, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. It's been a, a long time in the making. I know we've, we've chatted about it off and on, and I just had to follow up. Thank you for following up. As I've gushed to you many times, I definitely am quite a fan of the show, and uh, I feel like so many of my heroes and the people who have like gotten me to this point, both in person and not, have been on the show, you know, Al Schmidt, Ryan Hewitt, Michael Rosen, Brian Matheson, Michael Brower. I mean, all these people just, so I, I feel, I feel uh, very humbled and grateful to be in their presence. Thanks for having me. Oh, well, thanks for being here. You're talking to us from your new house in Nashville, correct? Yes, sir. Nashville, Tennessee. You moved there. God, how long has it been since you left here? We moved in 2017 from the Bay Area. So four years in October. I think we got here like the first week of October, 2017. Okay. And for my audience that doesn't know you, give me the brief summary of what it is you do day to day, like producer, engineer. What are all the slashes between your names, as I like to say? 
Yeah, brief is going to be hard in general with me. I, I, uh, I'm quite a long-winded individual, but producer, engineer, coach. I've dabbled in so many different sectors of music as I've produced and engineered records and played music my whole life. There's been parts of strategy, parts of business development, branding, merchandise, all kinds of things that I've just stepped into to both help myself move along in my career, but also help artists and people I've been a part of move along in their career as well. So yeah, quite the multi-hyphenate, but in general, like producer, engineer, and just kind of guide to artists to help them sort of develop along their path. Is that where the, the coach comes in? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I feel like as producers and engineers, we are in so many more sessions and so many more recordings than an artist gets to be in, right? I mean, like an artist makes a few records a year, but we as producers and engineers, we do it all the time. And I think we have a lot of valuable insight that can help people sort of steer a better path for themselves. So I'm always really focused on what can I do to better this overall environment that I'm existing in with other creators and whatnot. How was the transition to Nashville for you? Oh man, it's been a roller coaster. <laughs> uh, you know, I was born and raised in the Bay Area, really hadn't lived anywhere else. I played around in LA a little bit, did a little bit of stuff in like Northern, Northern California, but it was home and I have built a really great base for myself there. It's still a place that I go and make records in and work with artists and still for sure home. But Nashville, I kind of just put it in this perspective of like, I left the Bay Area when I was 30. So it's 30 years of like building up a base for yourself in place. And I've been here for four years in Nashville. So I'm like in kindergarten of like building my network and letting people know who I am here and also just contributing. You know, I think that's a big part of like when you move to a new place, it's like being ready to contribute to it. So it's been good. I came with a lot of energy. I was very excited. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think last year was kind of a hamper on it, obviously for a lot of people, but this town, especially like the whole reason I'm here is to be around people. So kind of took a retooling of things, so to speak. And this year has been kind of like, I feel like that edge of the curve sort of going parabolic. My friend and artist, uh, Mary Bragg, great singer, songwriter. She told me when I first moved to town, she's like, it's a four-year town before things start kicking off. And I feel like it's right on the dot, like things are starting to move. So it's been good, but it's definitely been a learning experience for sure. What part of the learning experience have you, have you encountered? I mean, how different is it from, I guess, culturally from California, from Northern California specifically? It's, it's very, it's very different in a lot of ways and very same in, in other ways. I mean, I think when it comes down to music making, you know, it's a language that works across the planet, across time and space. So that, that part is pretty consistent. I just think it has taken a different understanding of how things actually work. Like Nashville is a very business centric town. So everything, it comes with a decision about like, how's this going to land in the real world? How's this song? How's this lyric? How's this word? How's this mix? How's this going to actually show up? Not just people's ears, but actually in the world, how's it going to be marketed? So I feel like that's always here. And in the Bay area, it's like the exact opposite. There really isn't music industry. There's so many amazing studios, so many amazing producers, engineers, artists. I think it's one of the best creative places to make music, but there's no business. And so there's no real kind of like motivation in some senses to like make those very business-centric decisions as you're creating. So I think that was the first big thing coming here and understanding most things that mean something don't happen without a contract. And a lot of understanding the way you network in a new place like this is a different town, just like LA is a different town than San Francisco or Oakland. So I think understanding how things work here, who's who, I mean, the first few months I was here in town, you know, people introduced me to songwriters and producers who were like big, big people here, but I don't know who they are. So it's been about, I feel like the last year, like really getting an education on the history, who's who, like what means what, what really formed here. And I feel like that, that has been the turning point is really understanding the place that I moved to. So that, I think that's the biggest sort of transition thing is just learning a new place. Yeah. Did you have a lot of trepidation uh, leaving the Bay Area? 
not leaving necessarily, but what was going to happen either way. I felt like it was like LA or Nashville. One of the two was going to have to happen just for a, from a personal growth perspective. I think that especially now you can make it work anywhere. You know, we're in a remote life. So if you live in like Mali or if you live in Des Moines, like you can make this work, you can make records. But for me, I really, really want to keep growing this career. You know, I mentioned greats like Al Schmidt and his journey kind of took him around different places, took him from New York to LA. And so that was kind of in the back of my head of like, okay, I need to need to go to like a real music center. And that was enough passion and inspiration, I think, to get me through some of the rough spots and through some of the, that trepidation. But I didn't come here with a passion, let alone a real knowledge for country music. California country, for sure. I worked with a band called The Easy Leaves with a very California country sound. I mean, I love Merle Haggard and the Bakersfield thing, but that's not necessarily indicative of what Nashville is. So I wondered if that was going to be an issue. And I can't say if it is or not, but I can say that the other things that I offer sort of coming from this other world of like basically working a bunch of stuff that isn't country, I can kind of bring that into country music and, and help that sort of form while I'm getting my current Nashville education on it. So I think that trepidation sort of like has since gone away. And now it's mostly good old fashioned working engineer trepidation where, okay, <laughs> when's the next project coming? When are we going to keep making money? So that's always there too, no matter where you go. What made you decide to go to Nashville instead of going to Los Angeles? I think I was more scared of Los Angeles. I wanted a break from California pace. You know, I really wanted a break from that pace. And, I, and LA is much more chill in the Bay Area and I love the people down there, but I just needed a break from it. And I felt like, I mean, if you're going to be in music and you want to be in the United States, you really don't have a lot of options. And so that was a big move. And then also just economically really wanting to move a couple chips forward in the game. And it's really hard in California. And I you know, coming to Nashville was like night and day difference. So I think a little bit of the combination of those two things was probably why I picked that over LA, but I still dream of like going and working at Capitol. You know, I still want to be in there making music. So yeah. And the other thing too about, well, I'm sure, and of course, Los Angeles is like this as well, but I mean, there's a lot of talented, crazy talented people in Nashville, not yes. just songwriters and musicians, but engineers. Absolutely. Hugely talented. So, and, and so the sense of competition, were you, are you intimidated by any of that? No. I love it. I feel like we have a lot to learn from people and I feel like we all have our own individual thing. And I think that's, that's been a reality as long as I've been in music is there's always been competition. Even when I was in bands when I was a kid, like, you know, like it's like us and the other bands, who's who, who's going to draw more, you know, like we played in plenty of battle of bands things when I was a teenager and whatnot. So no, I, I'm not nervous by that at all. I think there's a lot of room for it. I think the only nervousness comes with like, okay, where are my deficiencies? All right, man. Okay. I need to get a lot better at like, playing keyboard, or I need to get a lot better at like understanding if I put the capo here, what chord is that now? Things like that. The level of musicianship is much higher, even in like people passing by on the street. But that, that doesn't reflect on the individuals. That just makes me like want to know more and work harder and kind of be more aware of where I can get better at things. Now you've recently bought this house and that is something that is challenging for a lot of people in California. Yeah. I don't think it would have happened for us for another 10 years, my wife and I. I think it would have been more waiting, more saving. <laughs> well, and, and speaking of your wife, like how did you all arrive at this decision to go there? I mean, obviously there's something for you, but what about her? That's a great question. We talked about it for a long time. We've been together for 10 years. At that point, we've been together for about six, seven years. So we had talked about moving for a long time. She's from the Midwest. And so she was looking to sort of come back here. You know, our favorite place in the world is San Diego. 
I mean, it's a beautiful place, but it's not really a music place, right? So we could have picked any other sort of place that was like maybe better long-term for us. I mean, hey, like I'd love to go to Thailand. But I think that this place sort of offered like a little bit of everything that we were looking to to have, you know, a little more like economic freedom, a little more of the the music centric stuff. I mean, she's been probably the closest thing to a manager I've ever had in terms of pushing me, encouraging me, really understanding like where certain places I can improve. The first time I met Vance Powell was in a, a Grammy party hotel lobby. I was like, that's Vance Powell. She's like, oh, she should go talk to him. Like that kind of stuff. So she's always on my back. And I feel like that wasn't a hard switch for her, but she, she really also wanted to, you know, really come up in her life. She became a real estate agent since she moved here. So that um, was something that she really wanted to get into. And I guess, you know, it's a little, little easier here, but that all kind of spawned something for her. But I, I think that this is our landing pad for a long time, but I imagine we'll, we'll see some other places too. Yeah, that's great. I mean, what better way to like have your significant other get involved in the community, but, you know, be a real estate agent because it's like, she gets to see a lot of different parts of town, meet different people. And yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah, it's been awesome. So this house, have you set up a studio? Do you plan on mainly working out of there? Or, or tell me about your studio situation. All I have is this microphone stand I'm fighting with off camera. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> you, and, you and that microphone stand are not made for Man, one another. I know we're not. I'm here. I'm going to slide it in. We'll, we'll do a little bit of that. It's just a little, little too heavy on the back boom part. Yeah, de definitely for me. Well, since forever, I've never really had a home studio. I've had a mix set up. I've had plenty of a place to do like overdubs, but I've never really had a space like, okay, come here and track. I've certainly tried it many times when I was uh, living with my grandma when I was still a teenager. She had this kind of garage space that we called The Classroom in San Pablo, California. And I recorded a ton of my first projects in there when I was a kid. A bunch of touring bands would come through and we would try to trade them recording time to let us like join the shows when we went to their town and things like that. So I had things like that, but even before I moved to Nashville, I really had a very pared down setup. So nothing more than the speakers, computer interface, just enough to mix and make music. And it's been pretty much the same thing since we moved here, basically because we were saving for the house, to be real. You know, every kind of last dollar wasn't going to go to like a new interface or, you know, I'm going to get this Avalon 737. It's like, that's not happening right now. So it's been this such a distant thing in my head that when I would dream about it, I would dream about a big side building and a small Melbourne console, and, you know, like all these big things. So I have to find that in-between kind of thing of like, okay, I'm, in, I'm actually in a house now and I've got a great room. It's on the other side of the house. It's not going to bother anybody. For the first time in my life, I want to make improvements for the walls. I'm not worried about, you know, making somebody mad or if I want to insulate it or whatever I want to do to it. So it's forming. I definitely am going to make this an acoustically treated space. I'd like to build an amp ISO here. And I think long-term, the reality I think for me is I love working in big studios and I'd love to talk about that because I think there's something really special about that that is accessible to everybody. But I love still going to big studios and making music on consoles and using mics and things like that because I know we can make stuff in a house. Of course, I think things sound really great in a house, but I think when you combine the two, there's something really special that can happen. So I really want this space to be a great overdub room, a great space for me to mix. And honestly, if this can be like one of the better places to come track vocals in town, I'd be stoked about that. But that's about the, the height of this dream for this house is like overdub mix space. So let's talk about how you're getting work or how you plan on getting work if you are just at that early stage. What's the strategy? Like, what does one do when you move to a new town and you need to work? 
Yeah. Well, I would say the move to the town and like getting to know people and find work, I feel like that started about three years before I came here. My first sessions I did here. So before I moved, ever moved out here, I came once, saw the town. I went to um, a sort of like NAM show I think that was happening here at the time. I think it was NAM. It was really small. And I just got a feel for it and then flew back home. And like I did, did a tour of Blackbird that time and things like that. And then I came back like a year or so later and did an actual session at a place called Catch This Music. It's a publisher on Music Row. I'm not even sure if it's still there right now, to be honest with you, but I work with this band called The Outer Vibe. And so I did a session there, like a very natural session, like come in, write a song, record it. So it was a really good dose of that. And just kind of at that point, I knew, all right, this is a good place to come. This is a good place to come and start making some music. So I started reaching out. I sort of knew Chris Mara from Welcome to 1979 and Mara Machine. So I, I hit him up. I sort of knew Chris Estes, who was part of the CLASP system, that tape, analog tape recording. So I hit him up and just started poking around and put a, a post on what is now known as Gearspace about coming here to Nashville and wanting to get to connect with people and things like that. So that was the first step. And then as I got closer to moving here, I started to ask people in the Bay Area, like Michael Romanowski, you know, like asking, like, I think I asked you, I asked Stephen Hart, I asked like, do you know anybody in Nashville? Just, just getting that ball rolling. The Recording Academy too was a really great sort of like initial launching space. So to start was just like tapping into the resources that were already around me. And from there, I mean, I feel like it's been the same as it's always been. I've never really run marketing or like run ads. I just have really relied on word of mouth and I'm a big proponent of social media. I think it's a really great place to meet people where they are and really connect with them, like right where they are on their phone. So Instagram, I've been building my website and posting on it for years and just kind of working that. So I think the same thing kind of goes here, just connecting with one person, then ask who else do you know? And just kind of letting that ball roll and just, just very naturally and organically. I am, um, I think I have more potency when I meet people in person. And I think I have even less anxiety when it's in a studio format. So I'm always trying to create those two things. So I'd say it's the second side of it is just creating those situations where I can meet people and, and have it branch off from there and let your work speak for itself. At the end of the day, especially in a town like Nashville, like your work has to speak first because everyone's really nice, but you got to be really good too. Yeah, you've said a couple things here that I'm still ruminating on. First off, you you mentioned Stephen Hart. I haven't seen Stephen Hart in ages, and that brings me back to my first mentor. Such a fantastic individual who's also been on the show. In fact, he was on the hundredth episode of the show. But the point is, is what I'm trying to make is, is that in saying that I haven't seen Stephen in ages is something that goes back to something you said earlier about the differences in Nashville and in, in the Bay Area. In the Bay Area. You hit it, man. There is no business here. Well, I mean, as far as record labels and infrastructure and day-to-day, like there is in Nashville. If there is, and I'm getting this wrong, Bay Area friends, call me out. Tell me. Point me in the right direction. But when I first moved to the Bay Area in 1988, September of 88, this place was on fire. There was so Mm. much going on not only in hip hop, but thrash metal and quirky bands like Primus and Counting Crows were coming up and Green Day. And it's just not the same place. It really isn't. I, I hate to say it and it bums me out. So, yeah. I mean, there's people operating those in that capacity. You know, Empire Records, a huge hip hop label. That's in San Francisco. One, two, three, four goes. Everything they do for the community. I mean, there's our, our Hoolies and El Cerrito, you know, like Down Home Records. There's little spaces of it that exist, but it's different when like you go to a place like LA or Nashville or even New York to some extent, where it's like your likelihood of running into somebody or connecting with somebody that is also in the music industry or also in your industry is extremely high. 
There's so many stories of people I've met since I come here that have told me like, oh, you know, they'll be walking down the street, warm day, someone will drive by and be like, hey, so-and-so, we're going to a session. Do you want to come? That really still happens here. I think a lot of the sort of studio dreams of mopping the floors and getting a spot, maybe not like in a big job, but like working behind a desk, that still happens here. And Or meeting a manager, meeting a publisher, meeting somebody who can help you at least like make sense of what a music career is. They're actually here. And so I think for the Bay Area, it's like everyone's there, but everyone's also you have to seek each other out. Like, and it's a very small enclave and it's powerful and it's potent, but there aren't the resources that drive the economic side of it. So that people are like, oh yeah, let's go have a big studio session or like, let's go do this big writing boot camp at a house and try to come up with songs to go pitch. Like a lot of that is just, it's an afterthought and it's, and it works both ways. Like in the Bay area, like you have complete creative freedom. Like if you want to go make the best album of your life and not have anybody's input and just be yourself, it's the best place. So (laughs) many great studios, so many great engineers, musicians, producers, you can make your best personal record. If you don't care about commerce or the economy, like go to the Bay Area and make music. But I think if you really want to have a career out of that, it's it's just missing that spot of people who work behind the glass as well. Yeah, and we're also spread out here in a big way. And it's not like you can just go to the coffee shop and run into various members of the musical business community or music right. community in general. Yeah, and people are busy too. People are dang busy. I mean, like there's amazing incredibly talented, successful people in the Bay Area, but like everyone's crazy busy. And if they if they live in Marin and you want to meet in Oakland, you got to plan that months in advance. And I think that spontaneity is just what gets trampled out by sort of just trying to exist in that space. Right. So that, that brings about a few other factors, you know, and I don't want to turn this into a, oh, the Bay Area, you know, is bumming me out. It's not, but it has its challenges. And one of those challenges is, like you said, if somebody lives in Marin and you want to meet in Oakland, it's like, well, okay, let me figure out the traffic and uh, my schedule and where are we going to meet? Where are we going to park? Oh no, let's not park over there. There's a, you know, cars are getting broken into left and right. And there's a ginormous homeless encampment over there. And we can't go and sit and have coffee in this place because of COVID, whatever. It's, it's a little bit of a pain in the ass to say the least. Right. And I think it's indicative of basically how the entire country and most people who don't live near Music City feel like, you know, someone who is in Des Moines, like, well, I don't even, I don't even know the next guitar player. It's a common problem. And the Bay Area just, just became one of those places that sort of, for the time being, the culture is muted. It's there, it's existing, but it's not being amplified in the same way. It'll come back. It comes and goes in waves. It always does. But I think that it's good to think outside the box and I'll turn it positive here because this is where innovation comes through. This is where you can start to think about, okay, I want to exist in this place. I want to have a career. What can I do to actually plug in with the world, no matter where I'm at, whether, especially like with COVID, like it didn't matter if you lived in Nashville, like you weren't going anywhere. Like I was saying, like, there's no shows to go to, nothing's happening. Like you can't go connect with people. And so I think that problem is the problem that we should all be trying to figure out for ourselves, kind of going into this next decade for, for ourselves as entrepreneurs, especially, but definitely in music and thinking about how do we keep growing our ability to connect with one another. Because ultimately I, that, that's how people are finding you to make music with you or want to make music with you. It's, it, it is a little bit, of course, like having a successful product, like a great song or having a great team or having some money or budget or connections. It is part of that, but you also have to arrive at it with a willingness to exist in it and sort of know how to weave yourself towards it. So I think it's a problem with a positive side. 
Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. Tell me about growing up. When did uh, recording become a, a serious interest of yours? I think as soon as I realized that I was not going to be the musician that I knew I aspired to be. Mostly because like I'd been playing guitar since I was 11, but then I'd walk by like the jazz band up in Old Valley High and I had a lot of friends who were in the band and I would look at the music they had, the sheet music and all this learning I had like had from like trying to learn clarinet when I was seven and first starting playing guitar, notes on the page just didn't make sense. And I, I kind of was like, well, I already feel like I'm on my own path, kind of like learned by ear, played guitar, like learning Metallica songs and Green Day songs and trying to like piece those back together, played in a lot of bands really early on. And I think that recording became a way to participate in music beyond my skill level. And I think that's probably a story for a lot of engineers. And I liked making music and I liked what we were doing. You know, it was pretty bad because we were teenagers, but I liked it at the time enough to be like, let's go play shows and things like that. But it was really special to go hang out with my friends and their other band and bring like my Fostex MR8 little digital recorder and like 57s and try to record them or finding bands on MySpace and having them come to my grandma's house because she had this garage I could use. And so I, th I think it really just became a thing of, okay, this is a pathway forward in life. And then society sort of sets in. And like when you're in 10th or 11th grade, you know, you have to obviously make a decision about your life. And I, I knew I didn't really want to go to college college, but there was a school called expression college for digital arts in Emeryville, California. And my mom took me on a tour and my mom has always been the most supportive person for me in my life. She bought me my first guitars, always really encouraged the music thing in my life. She also plays piano and she sings uh, her favorite artist is Alana miles, uh, black velvet y'all, you know, that song. <laughs> 
<laughs> Anyways, so we went on a tour and she's, she signed off on it. She's like, okay, you, you should do this. And so I uh, went to school uh, pretty much right out of high school at Expression College of Digital Arts and kind of in that, that junior to like go into expression year timeframe. I think that's when I got really serious about it. That's when I was like, okay, I'm going to go to school for it. I better like start studying, start learning, start trying to make more recordings at home. But like I said, finding bands on, on the online and trying to get them to come to over to my grandma's house and record. And I, so in that time frame, and then of course, going to school for it at Expression, that cemented it. That was like, okay, let's do this. And I think that even what that means, getting into music at that point has evolved over the years. Like I thought I was just going to be like just an engineer for the longest time. I thought I was just going to be Tom Dowd. And, you know, I think that that's evolved over the years being like, you know, working and to be a producer and not just because I like helping steer songs, but also the people I'm inspired by, you know, like Sir George Martin and Rick Rubin have as much effect on me as Al Spitt and Jerry Finn in that sense. So I think that that has evolved, but definitely in that mid-teens to late-teens sort of range is when it really became like a serious thing. Like, I'm going to pursue this as a craft. Who have been your mentors in the Bay Area? I mean, I got to start at the beginning. I'll try to be brief, but Greg Willis, uh, he's since passed away, but he he worked in live audio in the Bay Area for a long time, in the East Bay Area especially, putting in like PAs and running sound. And by the time I met him, he was like a 75-year-old man. He was the audio tech lead at Pinole Valley High School. I, I got into like theater in school because I knew that was a pathway to play with all the audio gear that Greg Willis had. And so he led us really off the leash to set up these PAs for musicals and like for all the band performances that would happen and things like that. And just kind of let us fight with feedback, let us fight with trying to mute things, let us fight with signal problems and literally would just sit back with like a lollipop and a Diet Coke and just watch us struggle. It was awesome. So Greg Willis, for sure. First, first one, he was very supportive, really kind human being. And then Brian Matheson uh, of a Musicast fame. Brian had a venue called the Musicast, and that was like the epicenter for like my parabolic curve in music because it was, you know, it had all of the the makings of what I had imagined was the East Bay and like the Bay Area, like back in the day, just hype hyper everything going on, like the matches and like plain white tees and like real big fish. And it was just like all these cool pop punk and ska bands and rock bands and metal bands. And it was a major place in my life. And obviously Brian let me a lot, a lot of us go there, but you know, let my bands play there. And then also kind of, I found my way working there as well, just like as like an assistant from time to time, like Skylar Kilborn was the the live mixer. And for those who don't know, like a music cast wasn't just like a venue. They had like a real PA. And by that, I mean, like it was big and not just like a little Fender Passport. It had like a great mixer, but they also had like a whole secondary recording room upstairs and they were doing live webcasting before webcasting was cool. They, I mean, they were doing live chat. So if you were on the stage play and like people could chat to you from the screen and you could watch the shows online, they, he videotaped everything. And I do mean videotaped like that. He was recording on tape. So, <laughs> uh, so it was, it was a really cool experience. I mean, like it, there was a full studio upstairs and then a full, like real live venue. And he had a studio next door, which he still has skyline studios. And I mean, he took a lot of us in to like, if we wanted to learn it, understand it, he would let us do that. And so I remember when they rebuilt the stage, like helping run cables and lines and all that kind of stuff. So definitely Brian Matheson. I feel like that was my first dose of like how to exist in an ecosystem of creators and artists. 
and then Stephen Hart. Like yeah. that's the that's the top three. So I met Stephen at a Grammy U event, which was really successful for me. If you're if you're out there and you're in college and you're an engineer, like you should definitely join Grammy U. If you really want to be in this industry, it's a beautiful way to connect with people, especially if you're in a town that doesn't have a lot of people. Grammy U is a great way to go about it. And that's how I met Stephen Hart. And I was introduced by my friend Caitlin McGaugh and just told him, hey, like I'm, you know, I'm in school, I'm in expression. I really just want to be in studios and working. Like, please let me know whatever I can do to help. And I had little business cards, the free Vistaprint business cards, and I handed it to him. And like, sure enough, he called me the next day and he was like, can you come down right now? And, it, and I was like, well, yeah. And I went to meet him and he had just left Fantasy Studios. He was the chief engineer there for a long time. And he had just opened his own mix room at this place called Bay Area Sound Studios in San Rafael. So he had just moved in there and was looking for some help. So Stephen was in like a room, maybe like a 12 by like eight room that he converted to a mix room. Mm -hmm. And there were two really big studios that were on the other side of this warehouse designed by Sam Burkow, meant to be rehearsal slash recording rooms, and then a bunch of small rehearsal spaces. So like there was like 16 rooms in that, in that building and Steven had one and we had access to the studios just to kind of paint a picture here. So like, so as a recording there's also rehearsals going on. So there's this big mixture of people coming in and out, in and out all the time. It was really awesome. So I kind of got myself in a position where I was assisting Steven, but also got like a really very basic assistant entry level job at the rehearsal studio, moving PAs around, setting up mixers, watching the front desk, picking up phones, all that kind of stuff. And when that wasn't happening, I was helping Steven. So that's how I met him. And he really took me under his wing, taught me everything I know about miking. I feel like he taught me the Al Schmidt way of doing things. That's how he was going about things. So we didn't have a lot of outboard gear. It was just microphones and moving them and making them work in the space and really powerful and positive time in my life. Really great mentor. So those are my three Bay Area mentors for sure. In the beginning, there's been many more since. And for you audience, Brian Matheson, he was just on WCA number 360. Stephen Hart, along with Cookie Marenko, another Bay Area mm-hmm. veteran, of the recording world that we're both on episode 100. So you can check those out. I'll put a link in the show notes so you can put all the pieces together here of what Brad's talking about. <laughs> yeah. I kind of felt like that coming into this, like I'm going to be a, another nice little puzzle piece to fit into the Bay area story here a little bit. I'm 34, you know, Steven, when I met him, he was turning 50. So like about the time I was 19. So I kind of am in that generation where the baton was being passed from tape to pro tools, that kind of transition and mm-hmm. into that kind of world of things. So I feel very fortunate to have grabbed on at that time because I did get some, what I kind of refer to as like, classically trained audio engineering, like the old school kind of way of doing things, but still having to exist in a very new world. So that's kind of like been my, my sort of like story in that puzzle of things. And all those people are, are a big part of that. Let's talk about survival for a bit. So you've been at this for a while now and kind of been through the struggles, I'm sure that a lot of us have. So if you were to kind of sum it up for now, your experience how would you say you've managed to survive and, and what is your plan for the future to survive? The intuitive answer is to say yes as much as possible. And I don't mean that in a toxic, hustly work kind of way. I just mean like being okay with trying things and doing things that are maybe scary at first. Like when someone maybe first asks you to produce or asks you to work on a kind of music you're not sure about or asks you to mix when you're used to just tracking or vice versa. Or if someone really values your opinion because you made a lot of records and they want to hire you just to consult on their project, I think saying yes has really opened a lot of doors. And when I look at people I am inspired by, like they're also very multifaceted and doing a lot of different things. And so I, I think that 
has been and will continue to be a big part of it. And I think the refinement from here is getting much more laser beam focused about what I, what I want to accomplish with this craft. Like I said, I'm very used to and love making records that are just made on only an Apollo with a 57. I mean, in the middle of nowhere, I actually made a record with this artist, Catch Pritchard, in this ghost town called Escota, Texas, with this Apollo I'm using and like an old RCA. And that was it. I get it. I love that stuff. But for me going forward, I think it's really about bringing as much of my craft as I can to artists as much as possible and help create a refined level of music in terms of like helping artists really find their vision and having it come across in the songs, but also doing so with the sense of like the people it's going to land with really merging everything about the craft and audiences and people and real interaction and connection with music, really getting those two things to come together. And I think a lot of that's just going to come with being very specific with what I want to accomplish, like making those dream lists of artists you want to work with and really going for it. And, you know, I think that that's, that's the next thing is just maybe taking a little more risks and being a little less afraid to, to strike out. Cause if you don't ask, you don't, you don't know if you don't try, you don't know. And I think that's, that's the next place I'm at. Like it's already been enough of a roller coaster. I've already seen, seen the bottom, seen, seen some pretty big tops. So like might as well just keep trying to swing a little, a little harder at, at bat. What about the financial end of it? Where do you land on that? I always ask if, you know, are you a spender or are you a saver? What is your approach to managing money and keeping your head above the water? I feel like it's a constantly evolving learning experience. I don't come from a family of significant means. Don't come from a family of, or really surroundings of financial education. Rich dad, poor dad's a beautiful concept, but sometimes you don't have a rich dad in your life or a rich mom in your life or rich parents. So for me, I feel like my financial education journey only really began like 10 years ago. I feel like I made a lot of classic early 20s mistakes. You got a lot of student loan debt, had to work through, not really understanding how to save, having weird perceptions of how finances work and really not taking the time to learn like the financial system that we coexist in. So for me, I think that where there have been like peaks and valleys have directly corresponded with like my understanding or willingness to understand what's happening with my finances. So I think that that's what has allowed me to get to this place where we have a house, just understanding a little more about that. And to be like even more on the, on the nose, I watched this video. It's online. You guys can find it. There's a real estate guy, Tom Ferry. Tom Ferry has this YouTube video that you can look up and it's called how the rich manage their money. And we watched that a few years ago and that changed everything. So I encourage you to go watch it. You just Forget the fact that it's about real estate. Just look past that and just look at the charts that he's putting up and look at how money flows and how to actually set it up. So, okay, this goes to your tax savings account. Okay, if you want to have this kind of account, it goes here. Just It's really simple logistical stuff. Like honestly, managing a Pro Tools session is harder than managing your finances. Like, <laughs> So I really think that it's about understanding like, oh, that's it's as easy as it can work. So that's the big part of it. And then also not being afraid of the slow trickle. When I got serious about it, I was like, okay, I'm really going to put this to the test. Starting with like $5 a day or like $10 a week, just little stuff at a time and you watch it add up and then you get to the end of a month. You're like, oh, I've got some money saved or, oh, like I actually made a budget and I didn't go over. And so I have this little bit of money left over. That's what allowed us to get the house. And it like is a direct correspondence with trying to understand how to live better, like fix our credit and things like that, save better and get to this point. So I would say in short, saver for sure, but also the financial education has to be a part of it. 
we're in such an art dense business and it's so much about the heart and so much about the passion that we forget about the money, but you guys, we got to eat. If you want to get gear, like if you want to keep having a business, you can't put this to the side. You don't have to be like super expensive engineer, like rake artists over the coals or be extractive. You can replenish people and still like be valued for your time in the process. And I think learning that has also been a, been a part of it as well. Yeah, have you made some classic mistakes of just charging up a bunch of gear on a credit card? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Or I think another mistake of doing free work. And I don't mean to say that like you shouldn't like work on projects out of passion, but I think a lot of times it's easy to get stuck in a rut of, oh, I'll record your album and then I'll mix it for free. Or, you know, I'll record your album for free and then you pay me to mix it. Or I'll do a, a couple of days for you free here. I mean, that stuff adds up. Your time is the most precious thing on this planet. You really don't get it back. And if you want to work on creative projects, like and do them for free, you better own them. You better have part of that. So actually you get to at least take a share in it or whatnot. So I think that too, I did a lot of working for free, especially when I had studio jobs, like when I was working for Steven or I was working for Bob Weir, it was consistent enough work that I could take on free work. Like, okay, I'll work on my Saturdays and drive out to Sonoma and do a session at someone's house or whatnot. But that stuff, it just doesn't pay off in the long run. And I think if I could do anything different, I would have maybe used that time a little bit differently. That's important though, to, as you say, go out, do those random odd gigs here and there, not just whether you're being paid or not, because you get a sense of what it is you like, what it is you don't like. And mm -hmm. as you get older, I think you start to refine like, okay, I'm not going to do this gig, but I will do this gig and I'm going to charge this much. And if they don't want to pay me or they don't have the budget, tough, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to spend time with my family or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And you think about what it's, what it's worth to you to do. I mean, there's definitely artists, like if they called me today and they were like, the budget is basically nothing, I'd be there in a second. You know, I'd, yeah. I'd buy my own ticket and there's other artists. You couldn't pay me enough to go work with them. You really couldn't. So it goes both ways. And I think when it comes down to like being true to yourself and what you really want to work on and not just like, I don't mean the style of music, but like how you really want to show up to music as yourself, especially as a producer engineer, I think that's the way to let it lead to where you want to go. I think about like what Michael Brower says a lot, like how he gets ready for his next season of what he wants to mix. He starts thinking about like, okay, I want to mix. I've been doing a lot of pop. I want to do some indie rock. He, he lets it become him. He lets it become a passion for him. And so then he ends up mixing a more indie rock record and, and it doesn't have to be so pop sounding. And, you know, I think just being open to growing into the place that you want to be is probably the most important part of this career path because it, it definitely requires constant self-work, constant growing, and just being really true and, and honest with yourself. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. If you were to start over today, let's just say you know what you know now and you were just getting into it by some miraculous space-time continuum thing that happened. <laughs> what would you do different? It's a great question. I'm very grateful for what's happened. So I'll just, we'll just imagine it's in like another dimension that this is happening. Yes. I think two things. One, when I got heavy into engineering, I stopped playing music as much. And I know I had to rebuild some skills. Like I started my life playing guitar and playing some drums and things like that. And I kept playing guitar in sessions and doing a little bit of that work and definitely like never stopped dialing in amps and getting tones and things like that, but actually like working on it, like getting better at it. Like right now I'm really like, I've been playing electric guitar my whole life and I've been really trying to like get acoustic guitar play more under my hand, more like getting more of that Carter scratch, more of that rolling pick. My fingers almost don't, <laughs> don't do it. They're still used to chugga chuggas, palm muting and things like that. So 
I think if I could go back and as I'm getting busy engineering, still working on music, still songwriting, I feel like I would go back and use more of that gap of time between like 20 to 27 of playing more music, doing more songwriting and producing and engineering, doing all of that. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is like, I don't know what point, because when I was like a teenager, I'd pick up the phone and call every venue, anybody in town. That's how I met Brian Matheson. But at some point I like retreated into myself and calling people and picking up the phone became like real problematic, like anxiety kind of problematic. I think out of like fear of what's going to happen on the other end is going to be yes, is going to be a no. Am I going to say the wrong thing? Am I going to not be experienced enough? And so I would go back in time and just pick up that phone a lot more, call a lot more. Just like what I did putting myself in front of Steven, I would double down on that go to LA earlier. So I'm not so traumatized by what I'm trying to like make a move when I'm like in my late twenties. So I think just leaning more into the communication side of it, I would have definitely have gone back to do and, and is a big part of my strategy going forward, way more communication focused. Cause I love people. I love talking with people, learning at people, love listening to people. So I'm just leaning more into that because it comes naturally anyways. Yeah. That is interesting. Some people I meet are super fearless about who they'll reach out to for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. I definitely, with the show, had to just overcome any kind of fear I had because I got to reach out to people all the time. So I'm constantly emailing and messaging, you know, doing all the forms of communication we have in this day and age when I run across somebody to interview. But 20 years ago, I don't know. I don't know if I would have had the same willingness to just say, hey, here's what I do and here's what I need and I'd like to have you do this with me. Kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah. You're great at it. I mean, yeah, the, the lineup on the podcast over the years has been amazing. There's a, a famous DJ and, and interviewer. You might know him, Nardwar. You familiar with Nardwar? I know the name. Nardwar, the human serviette. He's a Canadian radio host and he's been on the air like since his, like, te- his teenage years, but he interviews everybody and his interviews are crazy because he does intense research on the people. He knows things about them like when they're like in eighth grade or like their first friend in high school who introduced them to this certain song. And so you kind of watch his interviews you're like, this is crazy. He seems like a character, but he legit is one of the best interviewers there is. But there's a TED talk with Nardwar and the whole TED talk is about how Nardwar just always just said, just ask. You, you never know what's going to happen. You just ask. And that's how he's interviewed like prime ministers and Snoop Dogg and just like anybody. So that always is in the back of my head. If I just ask. And if I could have heard that a little earlier, I think I might've put better use to it, but for sure. Now <laughs> I, I feel, feel like the fearlessness is coming on. Let's talk about the up and comer recording students who might be listening to this in whatever classroom or on their own. What advice would you give to them about trying to be an audio professional in this day and age with studios closing in some places and those opportunities to, you know, get in on the ground floor, those opportunities are fewer and far between. So what would your advice be to those students about launching their career? Yeah, I think the the only real difference is that as time progresses, as an engineer and producer, you have to be less focused on the studio or the, the place or even to some extent the label or the organization, but the artists being really focused on the artists because the amount of music being made is not decreasing, it's increasing. And the amount of content that's needed is increasing. And the quality expectations are they're out of this world. What's expected from rough mixes and demos is far more than what it was, you know, when Bruce Springsteen's cutting Nebraska. It's so different. And so there's 
a lot of room for engineers and producers. It's just not going to look like Joe Ciccarelli or Sylvia Massey in a studio. Those pathways are possible, but there are many more home recording steps that have to happen before that. And I think also for engineers that maybe aren't going to be in studios, like embrace getting awesome and making records in the house. Like look at Phineas and Billie Eilish making those records. Or I know the the newer Taylor Swift stuff. They are in that big studio in like in New York, but they're doing a lot of writing in the house. Jack Antonoff's studio in New York, that's a small apartment and they're just full of gear and crap and all kinds of stuff. And I mean, they're making some of the biggest music in the world. So both worlds have to coexist. And I think if you can really become like excellent at your craft in a small space and let let your art and your craft speak for itself, it's going to guide you to be in these bigger spaces. But I wouldn't be discouraged by it. And if you want to work on SSLs and you want to work on Neves and APIs, you can make inroads and make the time to do it. Build it into your budget. I think for a lot of a lot of engineers, the thing you have to understand is it's not up to you to decide if something is too expensive or too cheap. That's the client. That's the artist to decide. So oftentimes, every time really these days, I give two budgets. I give like all out, like here's what it costs if we go four and a half days on one song. And here's what happens if we go four and a half hours on one song. And let them decide, you know, if they're like, yeah, let's do two days on the song and let's go to Blackbird for a day, then we'll finish the rest of my house. A lot of artists are down for that. You know, like this is their dream too. They also want to go to studios. You can't let them forget that just because you think they're priced out of it. And for a lot of artists, they might be like, no, I can't do it. Is there any way we can like just go run the track through the console for an hour? You could do that too. You can go rent Blackbird by the hour. They don't care. You can go rent any big studio for a little, little bit of time. Like, especially if you're a student or you're like, hey, like, I just really want to get my feet under the ground to do this. Uh, and I really want to do it in a space like this. They're going to encourage you. This is a very encouraging community. So I, I would say just not to be defeated by the, the changing times because they're always going to be a change in. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, on that note, where can people find out more about you? Braddollar.com. B-R-A-D-D-O-L-L-A-R.com, just like money. <laughs> that's my real name, by the way. People often wonder if that's like a stage name, but I was christened Brad Dollar when I was born. BradDollar.com. And then I have a YouTube channel, albeit I feel like the last few months I've been a little not working on as much, getting moved into the house and things like that. But I've been building a YouTube channel the last six months to a year pretty consistently, just bringing information to people. A lot of things that I feel like artists and producers and engineers are just kind of, they get stuck on and they're just they're easy, easy answers for me to provide, but I think they can open up a lot of doors. So I have a YouTube channel and you can find that on my website or you can look Brad Dollar on YouTube. And then um, I'm at Brad K Dollar on socials. So, but I'm around, I'm pretty easy to find. Excellent. Well, I'm going to include a link in the show notes to all that uh, for Thanks. the audience to find. Well, Brad, it's really good to see you, man. I'm, I'm glad you're you're settled into your new home and and you've made your way to Nashville. Thank Times you. are going to be exciting for you, I, I see. I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I'm just getting started. I feel like 2020 being at home so much, I went back to really study my craft. I feel like I really doubled down. I listened to your podcast last year. I was just really just, just glued to as much information as possible. So I'm excited to see the kind of things that come down the pipe and what kind of music we all get to make together and, and do. So I'm very excited. And, and thank you for having me on the show to, to be a part of all this. Oh, it's a pleasure. Great to see you. You take care. Thanks, Matt. You too. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LPUNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for. 
giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to CaliAudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. Brad Dollar here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Appreciate you coming by week after week, episode after episode. We've had a great year, and this is the last episode of the year 2021. We'll, of course, be back next week with another episode, and we'll start 2022 with yet another show. Remember, if you have a guest suggestion, stop on by WorkingClassAudio.com. Find the form, fill it out, send it on over. It is the fuel that runs this show, and it is super important that we have a constant flow of guests. That's how it works. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew for a great year. That includes Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the magical Mr. Chuck Smith there at the top of the show. Always remember, connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.